HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on a special bonus episode of Meet and 3, we're celebrating Mardi Gras with an ode to the king cake, the most delicious custom of carnival season. This is kind of like terrible comparison, but it's kind of like a braided New Orleans babka, if you really think about the actual technique of it. Do we know why they put a baby in the cake yet? You'd better be careful where you get that cake because your friends and coworkers in New Orleans are going to have an opinion about it. Tune in to Meet in 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you live from Full Service Radio at the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C., and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Today, my guest is Jamie Ager, the farmer and CEO behind Hickory Nut Gap Meats, calling in from his farm in North Carolina. Jamie, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So... Let's start with where you are. Um, can you kind of paint us a picture of where, where in North Carolina the farm is located and um, what the landscape's like out there? Sure. So, so we're, uh, my family farm is located about 20 minutes southeast of Asheville, North Carolina, which is in the southern Appalachian Mountains. And so we're definitely in a mountainous region, the western part of North Carolina, and, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a bottomland valley uh, that, that comes up against three mountains, Little Pisgah Mountain, uh, Tater Knob, and uh, Ferguson Mountain. And so uh, this is where I spent my, pretty much my whole life is right here at Hickory Nut Gap. Wow. And um, yeah, so you've been there pretty much your whole life. Um, I, the farm has been in your family for about 100 years. Is that right? Yeah, my great-grandparents moved here in 1916, wow. and so uh, they were, presbyter- my great-grandfather was a Presbyterian minister who, who, uh, who had, they were married in 1916, and they were coming through uh, Western North Carolina on their honeymoon, 
and they found the farm. And that, that was how it all started. <laughs> that was how it all started. <laughs> so, and were they, were, were they farmers? No, he was a minister and he actually right. had gone to Yale and he, uh, he was, he had just found a, a wife, which was a real asset for him. He, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he was kind of a, having a hard time, you know, like a lot of Presbyterians. There was a lot of shame and guilt, and, huh. and he was struggling a little bit emotionally. But he found a wonderful lady who had been studying art in France with uh, Monet, and he ended up coming through Western North Carolina on their honeymoon. And, you know, Western North Carolina in 1916 was a pretty destitute economical, you know, economic environment to yeah. be in, you know, the South and the sort of Appalachian stereotypes that are out there are are primarily due to the sort of economic doldrums of post Civil War South, right. and uh, and whenever he came to Western North Carolina um, as a as an educated guy who who was of the ministry, so he had a, a service orientation towards things, and um, he he sort of realized that there wasn't a lot of economic development as far as agriculture went, and so he sort of recognize the need to get organized and create a, uh, a farmer's co-op. And so that, that was essentially his life's work, was, a, was an organization called the Farmers Federation. Right. And the, but, but first he started farming, yeah? Yeah, 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 yeah totally. <laughs> had apples and, uh, and various different farming enterprises okay. uh, here. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask, because, so, you know, we're going to get to what you do now, which is more focused on meat, but um, it wasn't always um, livestock. It was sort of different. There were different iterations of the farm along the way. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I think at one point I read it was a dairy farm as well, right? Yes, yes. And, and you know, I sort of, it's a typical sort of small Appalachian farm where there's, you know, we've never been in a row crop situation here because scale was never really an option with the mountains. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the history of the production of the farm is that there was, um, they were kind of trying lots of different things in the 20s and the 30s. Um, and, then, and then World War II came and the farm became a dairy, like so many other small-scale dairies throughout, you know, the Southern Appalachian Mountains at that time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we had a dairy here. We grew tobacco. Apples have always been a part of our... Uh, farming heritage here and you know always had some beef cattle he brought some Hereford cattle down from uh from Shelburne Farms outside of just south of Burlington Vermont with okay. uh whenever he first moved here too so he was very interested in sort of um and improving the economic life for for farmers right well, yeah, let's go back. Let's talk about the, the Farmers Federation. I'm so intrigued by this. So you said that was sort of his life work. Um, how exactly did it work? Um, so that's a good question, and I wish I knew exactly how it worked. <laughs> but essentially, essentially... Maybe not exactly. Was, that's asking a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Yeah, they sold shares, and he would actually go to New York with all of his banking buddies. Hmm. and raise money every uh every so often they would basically build feed and seeds all over western world he had a a federation store where corn varieties or those type things um what you called it a did you say feed and seed basically a feed and seed 
can you explain what that is for a listener who might not know? Sure. So, so in most rural communities, there's like the feed store right. or the seed store, um, another farm wares that you might need. And, and basically that store is the hub of, of innovation, right? Mm-hmm. Especially back in that era, whenever there weren't a lot of options out there. And so, um, every, every community or every county had a, had a feed and seed where they would sell newer varieties. And then they would also had a marketing arm and they, they built hatcheries here in Western North Carolina. They, uh, they were basically in the, you know, marketing business as well as the supply business for, for farmers. And so they sort of helped start a broiler industry here. We have an old chicken house here on the farm that my mom still takes care of all the time. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's a 1930s-style chicken house with a big <laughs> run that was exactly how it was intended to be in 1930. Wow. And so... Um, you know, and, and his mission was basically to to help drive economic development to the more rural counties in Western North Carolina. Right, like sort of economic um, development that was in the hands of the farmers themselves, right? Yeah, 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 yeah pretty much. Um, and I, and, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, I, I was just reading a little bit about Farmers Federation, and um, one thing I I read said that it it was it got really big that it was like thirty five hundred members at one point. Um, I, I, I'm curious if you know why it went out of business. Well, you know, it was a co-op, and, and so co-ops were very popular in the 20s and 30s. Mm. And, and so it, 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 along with that movement, the, the Farmers Federation, you know, thrived. Obviously, there was a need for some coordinated organization, and to a large degree, I think it was his kind of effort that, that helped drive it. Um, Post-World War II agriculture, as we all know, was a time of concentration and aggregation and, and scale. And so as the 60s came about, I think it became more and more apparent to the board of directors that it was no longer, you know, either I'd get really big or they had to sort of combine with mm. other cooperatives. And so, um, and I know it was a very contentious time, to be honest. I know my grandmother, talking to her, she was younger, you know, at that time. She was probably in her 40s. And uh, when, it, when, it, when it collapsed, and uh, it, was a, it was the bedrock of a lot of communities. Yeah. And so um, it was, you know, they had picnics every summer where all the people would come, and they would have a string band play, and then they would introduce some new corn variety. And it sounded like a really fun, fun thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that was kind of um, way back in the history. Um, let's fast forward a little bit. So what year did you end up taking over the farm? So I was born in 1977. Um, and I, you know, we had the dairy when I was a child. Okay. And we sold the dairy when I was about 12, is my memory. And, and that was a big deal. And I certainly remember the the frustrations of being in the eighties and watching the sort of economic part of the dairy just not work. Yeah. And that's kind of, you know, you can pay attention to that stuff as a, as a child and right. know that. And so, um, when we sold the dairy in, in the year 19, I think it was the fall of, of 89. And, uh, 
and then I was 12 or 13, you know, I was getting ready to turn 13, and I was really interested in, you know, I was through my high school years, we still had the farm, and so my, and my mom kind of helped run it at that point. She was really in charge, and so we just made a ton of hay every summer, and I have three brothers and a bunch of cousins, mm. and so we all essentially spent our summers and after-school time working on the farm and just kind of holding it together. It didn't really have to pay anybody's salary necessarily at that point. It was more just to, you know, if there's cow, if there's grass, you got to have cows out there to eat it, and if there's right. cows, you got to have fences, and <laughs> that's essentially what we managed and maintained. And so, uh, and as I got older and older, I, I just I loved it. I loved being out there. I loved the, you know, work. I'm not going to say I loved it as a kid because that was that would be like oh sometimes it was hard and I didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> but the older I got, the more I appreciated the farm. And uh, and then I ended up going to Warren Wilson College, um, just up the road here in Swannanoa. And uh, studied, really got interested in, you know, and I was, my parents were back to the landers. Mm-hmm. We had we had chickens. So I was always doing chickens. We grew a big garden in the summer. So we, we were selling a lot of our eggs to the food co-ops in Asheville. So I was born with an idealism around food and, 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 and eating healthy and, and agriculture and all that. Right. Um, but, but, but in a really realistic way. <laughs> Not in a sort of naive Yeah, way. right. You knew what it really looked like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, and you know, our neighbors were the editors of Mother Earth News magazine. Wow. So that was the kind of people we were around. Huh. And, uh, and so once, once I got to college, I was interested in all these things. And then I basically just ended up really studying ag. 1998, Joel Salatin had written his books actually uh, visited Joel Salatin's farm with a girl that I was interested in, and she had been worked there. And so we went up there for the weekend and had a great time. And that just kind of opened my eyes to this whole concept of direct marketing Mm. and, you know, local meat and all that. And we were just, you know, the family farm was 20 minutes from Asheville. So it was a very um, easy for us to do that. And Warren Wilson, the college at the time, was beginning to direct market their beef off the farm. And, uh, and my wife, my, my girlfriend at the time, a year or two later, who's now my wife mm-hmm. of 19 years, um, was doing a lot of the marketing for that. Ah. And so she and I wrote a business plan for our senior, you know, class and said, Hey, let's make this work. And so we graduated as young, idealistic college students ready to change the world. And <laughs> now I'm 42 and have two teenagers and we're still idealistic and ready to change the world. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it seems to be going really well. So, so you had this from from the get go. You wanted to do pastured meats. That was sort of the the plan. That was my plan yeah. for for what I thought. You know, the farm is kind of a rolling farm. Um, I really liked beef cows, mm-hmm. and it just made a lot of sense to to do pasture based pasture raised meats. Yeah, and uh, and so we, you know, that first year I raised some chickens some turkeys and uh you know we we finished four or five beef cows and sold them by the quarters and and we did you know maybe five pigs and uh and really just kind of built a lot of infrastructure on the farm also we had to build a bunch of fence and and fenced all the cows out of all the creeks and that gave us the ability to kind of put a bunch of infrastructure in which is a perfect job for a 22 year old (laughs) young 
you know, guy out of college who wants to use his body and work hard. Right. So what does the farm look like today? Like what kinds of animals do you have? Sort of paint us a picture of the operation. So we are a, um, so the operation today is a certified organic land base for beef cattle. Mm-hmm. And so we raise, you know, about 40 to 50 certified organic cattle um, every year. And we raise probably close to 250 to 300 hogs a year on the farm um, that we have a butcher shop here at the farm and a little deli as well that's open uh, five days a week for most of the year and then seven days a week in the fall. We do a corn maze and a pumpkin patch. Mm. But, um, but we have a little farm store. And, and really our mission here today is we've gotten more clear with who we are as a company and, and really built ourselves into um, uh, a more organized organization, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is in and of itself. But um, our mission is to build communities through agriculture. And what we mean by that the whole supply chain of what duck is from soil health to animal health to to uh, at the end of the day oh you cut and, out you uh, agriculture jamie you cut out a little there can you say that last part again yeah to at the end of the day it's community health mm. you know it's our, our our mission is to build community through agriculture which means that we really just want to make sure that we pay attention and incentivize good soil health practices, good welfare practices for the animals, you know, healthy food for healthy people, and just build a model and a system where the correct things can be incentivized throughout that supply chain so that we can actually have an impact on agriculture that is uh, more farmer-friendly and and more based on, you know, triple bottom line economics. Right. Well, We have to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about what some of those practices are um, and a little bit more about how you're working with other farmers. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008, and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. All right, we're back. I'm Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report. I've been talking to Jamie Ager from Hickory Nut Gap Meats. So... 
Right before the break, Jamie, you were talking a little bit about um, how you at the farm have an overall mission to really kind of incentivize a certain kind of agriculture. Um, I think you said, you know, the correct, do things the correct way and, and, and think about community health. Um, what, when you think about what that looks like, like what are some of the practices you're talking about? Um, you know, how, how, how do you do this the correct way? So, you know, the correct way to me is, is looking at, you know, at the end of the day, the question is, what is sustainability, right? Mm-hmm. And, and how do we encompass the entire supply chain to think about sustainability comprehensively? And, and to me, you know, biodiversity is the answer. Mm-hmm. And how do we build biodiversity, biodiverse production models that are, that are soil enhancing, essentially? And so, you know, with, with beef cattle, for instance, we, uh, we practice a lot of rotational grazing, mob grazing, adaptive grazing. It's funny to see all the different versions of, of, uh, of this, of the same concepts of, of rotation, essentially, mm-hmm. rest and rest and, um, and so that concept has been the fundamental side of our beef cattle operation. And, and the nice thing about being down here in the Southeast is that, you know, we have the ability to have more of a year-round supply of 100% grass-fed cattle because mm. we can work with farmers in the low country of South Carolina and Georgia, as well as farmers in the uh, Southern Appalachian Mountains in the summertime. So we really have the ability to create a year-round supply of 100% grass-fed cattle. Um, so that, that's, that's essentially the beef side. For the pigs, what we do is we, we all the pigs are pasture-raised pigs. And so we, we put them out in the woods or on the edge of a pasture where we have a lot of, uh, you know, here in, at our farm, it's multiflora rose is the primary non-native exotic species. And huh. just let the pigs have at it, right? Beat it up, yeah. pair it up rip it up and then we'll cover crop behind it with a whatever's appropriate for that time of the year right now we've got some wheat growing that we planted last fall um that's doing beautiful we've got the pigs on a pasture that we're going to actually convert or you know pig pasture that we're going to convert over to a cattle pasture and Mm -hmm. cover crop that this spring so just really thinking about when you do you know pigs are obviously going to be rooting a lot but um you know, make sure we pay attention to soil health. All that fertility that they drop and leave behind, we can utilize right. as part of a cover crop and, and build soils and then have a killer place for them to come back into as well. Right, absolutely. And So those are the sort of regenerative practices. You know, we, we also raise some pastured hope here at the farm still. We do about 300 turkeys a year. Mm. <clears throat> and so we just rotate those around the pastures. Right. Um, and you, you mentioned other farmers too. So tell me a little bit about that. Now you're not, you don't just have your farm. You're also, um, like sourcing meat from other farms in the region and then marketing it all as hickory nut gap meats. Yes. So, so I ended up, uh, you know, about four years in of, of direct marketing and going to farmers markets in Asheville and, and we had our first son in 2004 and i realized that you know we weren't going to be able to grow 
as the market kept growing. We kept selling more and more chefs in Asheville. Um, and Asheville was kind of a really early adopter to the local yeah. food movement. And so, you know, and I was just kind of working out. And then there was this natural food store that opened in Asheville, and I ended up taking an ag leadership class through NC State where I got to go down to travel to Raleigh with a bunch of other farmers from across the state. And uh, I was the only kind of weird organic guy in the class. But, <laughs> you know, I got along with everybody just fine and I had a good time. And, and, you know, a lot of times I feel like I'm, you know, I, most of my life is just farming, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's the majority of what we do. So it's, it's no big deal to hang out with other folks just that are operating in a different economic environment. Yeah. And so, um, basically realized that some of the, one of the farmers that I was in the class with, Sam Dobson, was a dairy farmer in Iredell County, which is about two hours from us. And they had a uh, dairy farm where they were doing a bunch of grazing. And Sam and I got to be good friends. And I'd sort of sleep at his house before we went all the way down the next morning for the, for the class. And we just got to be good friends. And about this same time, a, uh, the, a new health food store opened up in Asheville that was pretty big. And they were wanting our beef. Okay. And I was just like, uh, we're not going to have enough fresh beef for that. But it was busy. <laughs> and, uh, and so Sam just started doing like two steers a week. Um, and we started selling that. And then he had some neighbors. And, you know, this area is just a good area to raise grass-fed beef. We've yeah. got a lot of ryegrass around here, a lot of triticale, a lot of clovers. Um, it's doable. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we just kind of kept growing that out. And then... That health food store got bought by Whole Foods, and so then we, you know, and then Whole Foods had the whole Global Animal Partnership GAP program, so we learned what that was like and started working with them on that. Um, so it just slowly but surely added on. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm a networker. I like people. I like to go visit farms, and, I, you know, I enjoyed my trips. And, and there was other, you know, factors in that even it connects back to the federation days i'd say because you know my family is generally known in this region yeah and my grandfather actually ended up in the u.s house throughout the 80s here and uh and so you know like a farmer bass hyatt and he's in clay county Mm. knew of our my family knew i was jamie clark's grandson they're good people (laughs) we'll work with them (laughs) you know yeah and so these these uh relationships matter you know yeah the older you get you realize sort of you're just a byproduct of your of your people yeah and so um yeah it just kind of kept growing and we kept learning what that looked like and and really just trying to understand it from a farmer standpoint and that's really been my motivation the whole time is like there's all these trendy words like grass-fed and organic and all this stuff that the marketplace is incentivizing but agriculture is way too complicated to be described in just one word, Yeah. whatever that label claim is. And so we'll check boxes if we have to check boxes, because obviously you have to do that if you're going to be in business. But, but at the end of the day, you know, we decided that we were just going to build a brand because we were in the sales and marketing business. And mm-hmm. once you're in the sales and marketing business, branding is just, you know, human beings only have the capacity to think so much and branding really helps you know, encapsulate a concept into a, a organized emotional experience, <laughs> I right. guess is the best way to put it. And so, um, you know, we realized after we were doing that a little bit, I'm like, we really need to 
organize this. And also it was me out running around selling meat every week and just me realizing that that was going to wear me out. We had a two-year-old at that point. We had another one on the way. and I just said, doing this. And so we built a brand um, and just sort of one, one, you know, 15 years of doing that. And it just kind of slowly but surely builds. And, uh, and, you know, we've, we've managed to, um, the, the big challenge in the meat business. And, and, and now that we're in the actual meat business, you know, the big issue is utilization because you have to move that whole carcass mm. every single week. <clears throat> and so we have to really pay attention to that piece. The margins are tight. Um, it's, it's hard to be in the meat business. Uh, and it's one of the reasons I think that it's, tended to get scaled so much yeah which is well, which is you know part of the deal yeah I, I mean I think it's really um fascinating that you know it, it almost seems that you know you said that like the farmers federation kind of ended because that was how that was sort of a product of its time the co-op model and um it almost seems like this maybe what you're doing building a brand that um incentivizes certain you know practices that are good for the environment and good for the people eating the meat and then allows farmers to you know farmers in your region to um you know gain financially and and you know maybe they're struggling because it's a they have a dairy operation and now they can be part of um hickory nut gap meats and make more money and it's it's almost maybe maybe this kind of like building a brand like this is the modern version of something like farmers federation right um, yeah, yeah, I'd say that's uh, there's a time for everything, and and I think the time is now for you know regenerative pasture-based livestock production models that are that are going to be you know a solution to the greatest problem of our of many generations, which is climate change. Right. And so, um, to me, that's what's really gotten me excited lately is just seeing that we are sitting on a real solutions-oriented production model that uh that's just really important yeah absolutely well and and back to the economics for a second you know i'm curious um how you know is it difficult to make the the financial aspect of this kind of production work when you're up against uh, you know obviously most meat is not produced in this way most is produced in systems that make it very very cheap and you're kind of selling Mm -hmm. against that how how has it been in terms of like trying to make this a successful business in this? Well, um, you know, we, when we, you know, there's a lot of companies like us that Whole Foods really created mm. because they, they buy the whole carcasses and that really uh, sort of locks in a margin. Wow. Right? I didn't know it, that. Whole Foods buys the whole carcass from you. Well, they used to, uh. um, and, 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 and they would still, um, but we decided to go to business with Whole Foods more as a meat company. Okay. But we still pay a lot of attention to utilization in our conversations there. Mm. Um, but, but, they've, but they have done that. Like there's small brands that they'll just buy the whole load. Because farmers don't have a cooler and a freezer and inventory systems and all the really expensive equipment and infrastructure to, to do that with. And so, um, so from an economic standpoint, you know, you're looking at in the meat business, you're looking at gross margins, fifteen to you know twenty percent, something like that. 
so it's yeah. a pretty small load and it's a fresh product and it's heavy and you've got to, you know, you, you're, you're, you're talking about live animals and it's all pretty intense, right? Yeah. Death, it's, it's a real thing. And so, um, when I look at an item like impossible burger, I'm like, wow, what a great idea. Big gross margins, yeah. all processed food, incredible storage, right. <laughs> much easier for the economic system of capitalism to yeah. manage. Um, no wonder there's so much marketing behind that thing. Right. So, so meat, I think meat's just, you know, it's, it's been such a scaled enterprise for the past 50 years because of all the infrastructure requirements, the shelf life, the processing logistics, the scale of the processing, um, everything. And, and I'm, you know, sort of a person who looks for that sweet spot in a business and, and wants to, to find a good economic model that we're not having to, you know, scale all the way. But it's, it's difficult to find, to be honest, yeah. in the meat space. Absolutely. Um, where where exactly are you selling? Like, is it just in North Carolina? Is it sort of regional? What's the, how far out do you go? We sell currently, um, North Carolina is definitely the majority of our business. Okay. Um, South Carolina, Greenville, South Carolina is pretty close. Um, Charlotte is big for us. Um, Atlanta, we sell quite a bit of product into Atlanta currently. Okay. We're about three and a half hours from Atlanta. Um and then, I'm trying to think where else. Uh, that's the majority of yeah. it, to be honest. Oh, New York. We saw a little bit into New York that just started. Huh. Not yet quite, but we're almost there. Uh, it's going to happen. We're, I- we're excited about that. So, you know, and we're about 50-50. We work with retailers like Whole Foods, um, Ingalls, Supermarket. We did sell to Earth Fair, but they recently went out of business, hmm. which was unfortunate. Um and then we also work with distributors for food service, like uh, U.S. Foods, um, Inland Seafood, Cisco, and 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 that was primarily driven by, you know, accounts that we had sold to in Asheville locally, and then they decided to to grow the the restaurants, ah. and so we just followed those. They they wanted to get it through U.S. Foods, and I was like, sure, let's figure it out. We'll set up the codes and it. There's a whole bureaucracy there that we just kind of figured out. Yeah, well, that's great. And then if you get in there, then that gives you access to other places that are using those companies, right? Right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. And then you can go to a Cisco food show and talk to folks and, and really sort of help help uh, drive the conversation Absolutely. about local food and pasture-based agriculture. Absolutely. Um, well, Jamie, we have to wrap up in a minute, but I just, before we go, I forgot to ask you one important question, which is tell me about the name of the farm and the company. I want to know why it's called Hickory. (laughs) Well, that's a great question. And the answer is that basically we are, um, on the very Southeastern corner of Buncombe County, which is the county that is Asheville. And, and behind us is a gorge, the Hickory Nut Gorge. Oh. So there's a gap in the mountain right there between us and the Hickory Nut Gorge, and that's called Hickory Nut Gap. And so um, in the old days, in like the 1800s, there was an old uh, drover's road that came through here. And there's an old house on the farm that was built in the 1830s. And, and so that was a 
a layover for folks or a stopover, sort of a one day's travel from Asheville. And so, and it was a very frequent way for folks that were traveling to the east to come. So they would come right through there. Mm. And uh, Hickory Nut Gap Farm is just where it all came from. Right. Now they can stop over and come to the farm. <laughs> they can come to the farm and visit and see some pigs and chickens and and uh, eat a really good hamburger. And probably my kids will be running around because that's what they do nowadays. <laughs> come down to the farm store and they get some beef sticks and <laughs> just do their thing. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's fun. I've got a lot of family around here. You know, I just feel like we're, we're, we're lucky to be able to, uh, do what we do every day. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. And uh, come visit sometime. Definitely. Thank all you. Right. <laughs> thank you all so much for listening to the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. I'll see you next week. The Farm Report is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Just enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.